0: Study on the Beatitudes and the uh, Sermon on the Mount, the longest sermon that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, gave that we have record of in Scripture, and uh, he deals with um, uh, the living of the Christian life after we are saved. So I want you to understand that all of the things that he's teaching here are regarding... Uh, I. I Sometimes the use of this word can throw somebody off, but they are dealing with issues of discipleship. Uh, the idea of following the Lord Jesus Christ once we are saved. And so, uh, don't, uh, don't look at this, uh, message and say, well, you have to do all of this in order to be saved. These, these men that are there are already the disciples of the Lord. They've, uh, already trusted the Lord as their Savior in, uh, in chapter number four. Uh, he, After he got tempted uh, by the devil in verse number 17, he already preached the idea of being saved. As he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he dealt with uh, this issue uh, of the heart. And uh, then he says, uh, after that, he goes up uh, into a mountain. And we're going to pick up in verse number 1 of chapter 5 and read down through about verse number 4 or 5, somewhere in that range. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Father, we come to you. I pray that you'll bless the teaching and the preaching of your word. And Lord, guide and direct our thoughts. May your Holy Spirit. And do His work today, and uh, I pray that you would help to stir hearts, call, uh, uh, bring bring to mind the things that we need to work on and labor on and get right, and other things that you would have us to uh, implement into our lives. I pray that you help us to grow, and as we leave this place, may we leave here loving you more than when we came in. I pray that you will help us today. May your Holy Spirit work outwardly or inwardly as we speak outwardly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We started a series a couple of weeks ago on the Sermon on the Mount. And there were a couple of things that, just by way of laying the groundwork for what's taking place here, are very important for us to note. That is that there are two different types of people that are mentioned here. First of all, in verse number one, we see what are called the multitudes. Now, the multitudes were those that followed the Lord Jesus Christ because they were amazed at what He was doing. There were miracles being performed. And uh, they were uh, astonished by that. And uh, you could say, and I hate to use the word uh, entertainment, but they they followed, not because Christ was trying to entertain. That was not His purpose. He was trying to uh, validate the message that He was preaching. That's what His miracles were all about. But uh, what these people were doing is they were being entertained. They thought, boy, this is something amazing. We've never seen anything like this before. And, uh, by the way, there are still people today that when they go looking for a church or they go looking for some place that they can call a church home, the first thing they do is they, they say, is it something that I enjoy? Is it something that entertains me and holds my attention? Does the pastor have, uh, visual aids and do the, does the lighting make me feel good? Does the praise team cause, uh, cause me to have my heart, uh, beating fast by the time he preaches? And we got to be careful that we don't make our choices of growing in the spiritual life based on the emotional, the entertainment aspect of things. Certainly God can do miracles, and certainly God does some great miracles. But there was a multitude of people who were following Him simply because of the miracles that He did to see what was being done, and perchance that they would even be the benefactors of what was being done. But there's another group that are mentioned here in verse number one, and these are the disciples. The disciples we found all the way back in verse uh, chapter number four. These were the men that when Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he told them to follow him, and the Bible says that they immediately, and in the next uh, sense, in the next group that he called, it says they straightway left, and it talks about the things that they left. They left their nets, they left their boats, they left their family. To follow the Lord Jesus Christ. These were people that were not just amazed at what Christ was doing. They said, we want what He has to offer. And they were willing to give up that which was most precious to them to be able to become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. To learn at His feet. There was a cost involved in that. There was a level of sacrifice involved in that. And while salvation is free, and salvation is certainly available to all men, When it comes to following Christ as a disciple of His, there is a cost. There is something that will be of a price to pay. They uh, separate, the Bible says in verse number 1, the first thing that uh, happens, the Bible says in verse number 1, that seeing the multitudes, He went up into a mountain. And when He was said His disciples came unto Him. The first thing they did was they separated themselves from the multitude. And sometimes, uh, we've got to get away from the multitudes, don't we? In order to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We've got to, we've got to not be as distracted by the things of this world. Paul wrote this. He said, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a good soldier. There's a price to pay. When you go into the military, uh, there's a steep price to pay. Uh, you go in there, you might have a nice hairdo. Now, I've never had that issue, but you might, you know. And the first thing they do, they take it away from you, don't they? You might come in there with an attitude. They take that away from you real quick, don't they? Uh, there's a price to pay. And men and women that serve in our armed forces, I respect them highly. I thank God for them. Because there is a level of cost that they give in order to defend our country. If you're going to become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, that even though our salvation was free and it did not cost us to be saved... If we're going to follow Him, there's going to be some cost. We might have to separate ourselves from the multitude. And then I want you to notice they went up into the mountain. There was some effort involved. Jesus went up to the mountain. The Bible says the disciples came unto Him. When He was said, they came unto Him. They went up the mountain. There was a price to be paid. And very important that we understand this, that this is the group that Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, He teaches great things to the multitudes. But these things are specifically intended for His disciples. Those that are willing to pay the price. Those that are saying, I would rather have Jesus than anything. I hold not my life precious. The Apostle Paul was amazing in writing about this. He lived very affluently as a young man before he got saved. He was Taught by the best teacher that was around at the time, Gamaliel. Which meant that he had to be from a fairly wealthy or influential family or both. Had everything given to him as a young man, I believe. He was a, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He went and uh, studied the Old Testament law, the first five books of the Bible. He, could ha- he had to have memorized in order for him to be a part of what, um, the, the, the group that he was with. And Paul goes through one time a whole list of things that he had. And he said, I count them but dung." He said, I count them but, but loss, That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His suffering. He said, I've done, I, I will gladly abandon all of that. And they're not even of value to me. Because I want the excellency of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want what Christ can teach me. Above all of those things. There was a song years ago written, I'd rather have Jesus... Than worldwide fame, than wealth and riches, I'd rather have Jesus than anything. And this is the cost of discipleship. To say, Lord, above all, above the things that I hold dearest, I want to follow you. And last week we dealt with the first one of the three beatitudes. The first three of the uh, of the beatitudes deal with who we are inwardly. Now, when we get to the fourth beatitude, we find the word do, and so there's some action involved in that. Uh, Still some things of an inward character, but there are some things that it produces in us outwardly in in our actions. But as we get to verses 3, 4, and 5, I want you to understand that these verses are dealing with the inner man. They're dealing not with an unsaved person here. They're dealing with a saved person who has trusted Christ as their Savior and is saying, "Lord, I want what you have to teach me above anything." And he begins, and we started this last week. He begins with those that are poor in spirit. The idea that we need to uh, we need to uh, to humble ourselves and to recognize that if there's anything of value to be had in our lives, it is only because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done in us and through us. I was sitting in a, a, a conference a number of years ago back in I think the mid-80s if I remember correctly. And I remember the preacher getting up and he said, all that I am and all that I will ever be, he said, I owe it to the glory of God. And he told his testimony how he had lived a life before his salvation. And many of you can relate to that. Some of you sitting here today can think back to the life that you had before you got saved. And then you look at where you are today. Was that something that you did? No. No. It was a transforming work that that God did when He came to live inside of us the day we trusted Him as our Savior. The Holy Spirit of God came to dwell in us, to live in us. And He quickened us, He made us alive, and He caused something to happen inside of us. And one of the first things that He tells His disciples is, you've got to empty yourself of yourselves. You need to be poor in spirit. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Don't be unteachable. Don't be, and we used the phrase last week, a know-it-all. I mean, I don't care how long you've been in church. I'll tell you this, I've been in church since nine months before I came out of the womb. My mom and dad were, my dad was a pastor, and I was in the nursery, and my mom listened to that over the speaker. And I'm telling you, I was hearing the Bible from before I was born. But I'll tell you right now, there is not one thing in my life of any value that did not come because, other than because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not one. Not my family, not my upbringing. And there needs to be a recognition in our hearts. If we are going to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, we cannot, uh, we cannot rely on the things that we did that have gotten us to a certain point in the Christian life. We need to come to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm empty. I need you to fill me. There needs to be a poorness of spirit in our attitude, and we spoke about that last week. That brings us to our second one. That's the one we're going to deal with today. As we get to verse number four, he says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's a peculiar statement to make to a disciple. I mean, doesn't the Bible talk about the joy of the Lord is our strength? Doesn't it talk that we're to rejoice again, always? And again, I say rejoice. Doesn't the Lord quite often speak of the fact that we should, be, uh, we should be happy and that there should be joy in the Christian life and there should be rejoicing in the Christian life? Quite a bit. So why would He tell His disciples, of all people, blessed are they that mourn? What's He talking about here? Now, now keep in mind the context. He's dealing here with men who have forsaken everything to follow Christ. The very first thing he says is, you need to empty yourself of yourself. Get rid of your own will. The second thing he tells them is, there needs to be some mourning in your life. And I'm going to teach a message this morning that on the surface you're going to say, why in the world would you teach that on a Sunday morning? There's something very, very important about this, and that is in the Christian life there has to be spiritual mourning And I'm going to explain what we mean by that here in just a moment as we go through this. We would understand that Christ certainly loves the world. He came to die for the world. He has a heart for them. If you will, turn with me to Luke chapter, hold your place here. We're going to come back to it. Turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter number 19. And let's look in verse number 41. Luke chapter number 19. And verse number 41. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, Luke writes this, And when He was come near, He beheld the city, and what? What does the Bible say? Luke chapter 19, verse 41, And when He was come near, He beheld the city, and what? Wept over it. The Lord Jesus Christ, before He got to the city, as He was looking over it, He looks out, and as He sees the city, the Bible says He wept over it. Now, you understand that that weeping is is a a, a more emotional stance than crying. You, You cry when you smash your finger. You weep when your heart is broken. There's a weeping that takes place at funerals. Someone in our family, some loved one, some friend has passed from this life. And there is weeping, not because we, if they were saved, not because we're weeping for them, we're weeping because our heart is broken. We're missing them. They're not going to be a part of our life from day to day until we get to heaven again. And it's okay to weep. In fact, Paul said it, that we should not sorrow, that we should sorrow not even as others which have no hope. He doesn't say don't sorrow, he just says don't sorrow like those who have no hope. But even the Lord Jesus Christ weeps here. Why is he weeping? What is it about the city? When He looked out at them, what was it that caused Him to weep? Well, Luke tells us. Let's look back to Luke chapter number 13. Luke chapter number 13. And let's look in verse number 34. Luke chapter 13 and verse number 34. Jesus is speaking here and He says, Oh, and by the way, Oh, is, a, is, is an expression, it's, it's a, an expression of emotion that is, I, I would say this, most times when you see it, the, the closest thing we can associate it to is a groan of emotion. It's, it's a, oh, there's a groaning there, there's such a, a stirring of emotion. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killeth the prophets? and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How oft would I have gathered thy children together, as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, and verily I say unto you, ye shall not see me until the time come, when ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. He wept over Jerusalem because of their sin. When we talk about the beatitude that Christ is teaching to His disciples here, He's not saying you need to be sad so that you can rejoice in the blessing. What He's saying is there needs to be some mourning over the sin in your life. Look at the context, if you will. The first one was, blessed are the poor in spirit. Get rid of our self-will. The next thing we must do inwardly, and the next thing we must get to, before we can ever grow, before we can ever build, on the foundation of discipleship that the Lord Jesus Christ will teach in the pages to come. There's something inwardly that must take place. There needs to be a humility of spirit. There needs to be a disdain and a hatred, and I would say even this, a brokenness over our sin. There needs to be a mourning. We're living in a time where sin is so casually treated, isn't it? I'm talking even about God's people oftentimes. I've said it so often before, and it's true, that the biggest sins, the greatest sins in all of the world are the sins that somebody else has. That's that's the way we think, isn't it? I mean, the big sins aren't the ones I have. Surely not those. They're the sins that everybody else has. What am I saying when I make that comment? What I'm saying is, I'm okay with the sins I have. I don't have a mourning over them. I don't have a brokenness over them. Turn with me if you will to 1st Samuel chapter number 15. And again hold your place here. We'll come back to it. 1st Samuel chapter number 15. I want us to look at David for a moment. David was a man after God's own heart. You know, David did more sin than some of the other kings that got destroyed, and God God cut off their reign and said, "You're not going to be a. Uh, you're, none of your children are going to reign after you." You know, David created did more sin in his life than some of these other men. What made the difference? Why in the world did God allow David to continue in his kingship, even though he sinned and did did wrong according to God? I believe the answer is found in David's heart and his remorse. Let me put it this way. His mourning over his sin. We find it time and time again in Scripture. Look with me, if you will, in verse number 14. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse number 14. Well, I'm sorry, it's 2 Samuel. I wrote the wrong passage down. Get to the right place. I was just talking about that this morning. I hadn't done that in a while. Chapter 15, verse number 14. And I may still have the wrong passage. I'm sorry about that. Chapter 15, verse 14. David said unto all his servants that were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for we shall not escape from Absalom, make speed to depart And I apologize, I wrote that passage down wrong. Well, we'll go to another passage that David wrote then, and we'll move from there. Go to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a psalm that David wrote shortly after his sin with Bathsheba and the fact that he had uh, caused Uriah the Hittite to be murdered. He He was confronted about this by Nathan the prophet and certainly paid a harsh price for his sin, did he not? He lost his own son. After it was born, He became sick, and he lost him. And in the time following his sin with Bathsheba, in the time that he had committed uh, uh, the murder of Uriah the Hittite, he sat down and he penned these words in Psalm 51 Have mercy upon me, O God. There's that O again. There's this emotional groaning. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me throughly from my iniquities, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is what? Ever before me. This was something that David could not erase from his mind. You ever, you ever been there? You ever done something that you knew was wrong, you knew was displeasing to the Lord, and it just weighed heavy on your heart? You lost sleep over it? You couldn't seem to get it out of your mind. This is the level of of depravity that David had experienced in his life. And he said, "...My sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, in the hidden part, that that thou shalt make me to know wisdom." "'Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities.'" Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from Thy presence, and take not Thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of Thy salvation, and uphold me with Thy free spirit. A number of things that David speaks of here. He's saying, Lord, there has been sin in my life, and this sin has been so vile, I don't want to ever have any part of it again. Therefore, Lord, I want You to create in me a clean heart. Purge me with hyssop. Don't let this sin ever come into my life again. He's asking God for mercy in verse 11 as he says, Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. And he asks for God to restore unto him the joy of the salvation that he'd already had by the Lord. And he says this in verse number 13. He says, Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. He knew what He had done with Uriah. Thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of Thy righteousness. O Lord, open Thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth Thy praise. For Thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. Now I want you to notice very carefully verse number 17. David knew what he had done, didn't he? He's prayed for forgiveness. He's prayed for cleansing. He's prayed for God to be merciful. In verse number 17, he says this, The sacrifices of God are a what? A broken spirit. A broken and a what? Contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. You say, why in the world would David get by with more sin than other kings and still be considered a man after God's own heart? Because David knew what it was to mourn over his sin. Sin was sinful. Sin was something to be despised. It was something that he didn't want to have any part of in his life. One of the great, one one of the great, and I believe probably the greatest prayer of confession is found in the book of Ezra. If you'll turn there with me. When we were going through this in, in our Old Testament survey in Sunday school, And I came across this prayer. Uh, Not only did I hear others mention this about Ezra's prayer in chapter number 9, I personally read through it and I thought, I I don't know that there's any other prayer of confession in Scripture that is any more powerful and potent than this. Look with me (coughs) in chapter number 9 of Ezra, in verse number 1. Now when these things were done, the princes came to me, saying, The people of Israel... "...and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their what? Abomination." So Israel was guilty of abominations, the worst of the sins. "...even the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, for they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and rulers have been chief in this trespass. Verse 3, very important. And when I heard this thing, I what? I rent my garment and my mantle. I plucked off the hair off my head and my beard. And sat down, astonished. You understand the the remorse that Ezra expresses here. Uh, he's mourning the sin of Israel. He begins to pray this prayer. If you've never read through chapter nine to listen to his prayer, what an amazing prayer! He speaks of how they're guilty, how God is long suffering, and asks for God to be forgiving of them. And he mourns over the sin of Israel. He doesn't just brush it under the carpet. He doesn't just say, Lord, I made a mistake. He said, Lord, we're wrong. He rinses his garment. He plucks his hair. And he sits down in mourning over his sin. Look with me in Daniel chapter number 9. Daniel chapter number 9. In Daniel chapter number nine, verse number one, Daniel says, "In the first year of Darius the son of Ahasuerus of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish seventy years in the desolations of Jerusalem." And I set my face unto the Lord to seek by prayer and supplications, notice this, with fasting and what? Sackcloth and what? Ashes. The sin of His people. God's judgment was being brought on them. Daniel, one of the few main characters of Scripture that nothing negative is said about him in Scripture. A righteous man begins to mourn for the sin of the people. I was reading a biography of David Brainerd, who was one of the early American missionaries to the Indians. I was reading a portion of his biography or his his journal that he had written first person, and he made this statement. He said, None of them, speaking of his friends and acquaintances, He said, none of them all is so vile as I. Whatever they do outwardly, yet it seems to me none is conscious of so much guilt before God as I. Oh, my leanness, my barrenness, my carnality, and want of a gospel temper, these things oppress my soul. These disciples are getting ready to follow in the footprints of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're getting ready to take his teachings and teach them to a world that needs to hear them. And before he begins their training, he says, "You need to be poor in spirit." He says, "You need to mourn. You need to mourn." Look at what he says here in verse number five, Matthew in chapter in verse number chapter number five, verse number four. He says, blessed are they that mourn. Do we understand the depravity of our sin? The wickedness of our sin? You realize that sin sent our Savior to the cross. By the way, mourning will always lead you to the cross. It really will. If you don't think sin is sinful, if we get to the place, and by the way, we're living in a society today that because of Christians' view of sin, the world has taken their view of sin and gone much, much further and said it's no big deal. It's amazing to me how many times we say, well, my sin only affects me, it's just bothering me. No, no, it's affecting someone. It affected my Savior a little over 2,000 years ago. It caused Him to go to the cross. And if we have trouble mourning over our sin and seeing the exceeding sinfulness of sin, all we need to do is go look at the cross. When they took the Lord Jesus Christ, the One who is innocent, They began to pluck out his beard. I don't know if you've ever done that or not before, but you start taking chunks of it out and the the bruising, the bleeding that comes from that. And then the Bible says that they took something and they they covered his eyes. And large, large Roman soldiers, men trained in war, would come up and smite him. And I'm not talking about a smack on the face. I'm talking about fists. Fists beating him mercilessly, saying, if you're the Son of God, tell us which one hit you. The bruising, the battering, the swollen eyes, the blood flowing. And after they had had their fill of fun, they take a crown of thorns. They place it on top of his head. They begin to beat the thorns down into the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many experts believe they had penetrated the skull and went even into the portions of the brain. And then they took one of the most cruel forms of punishment the Romans knew of. A cat of nine tails. There's was nine leather strips. They had sharp pieces of metal and glass and hooks on the end of them. And men who were skilled... Josephus, who was a secular historian of the time, spoke of accounts where these men were so skilled they could fillet the flesh literally layer by layer. They would take the whip and they would throw that around the body of the Lord Jesus Christ and allow them to embed into him. Then they would drag it. And Josephus said it was not uncommon for men who went through the beating of the cat of nine tails when it was done to have the skin hanging from their body as ribbons. Don't tell me that my sin is okay. Don't tell me that my sin is just a little white lie. My sin sent my Savior to Calvary. And Jesus tells His disciples, You need to mourn. As we begin to view Calvary the way that we ought, our sin becomes so much more sinful. Aren't you glad for God's grace? Because He goes on to say, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. I'm glad when Jesus was telling His disciples... I'm going to be leaving you. But I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I'm going to send another comforter. And he's going to come and reside inside of you. And he's going to live in you. And when you forget how sinful your sin is, he'll remind you. He'll help you understand the exceeding sinfulness of that sin. We call it conviction. Some people call it a conscience. It's the Holy Spirit of God bringing comfort to our hearts, recalling to us once again the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who willingly came and paid that price. That's the price we owed for our sin. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that God gives us the opportunity to be comforted by the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter number 5, and we sang that song this morning based on that verse, Paul writes this, Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Oh, aren't you glad of that? I'm so thankful that God gives us His grace. That's how a person who understands his own self-emptiness the fact that he could do nothing of value without the lord jesus christ doing it through him that's how a disciple who gets to that place of of emptiness and and and, and poverty of spirit the, the poorness of spirit they spoke of it brings them to the point of being mournful over their sin david spoke of how it, the sin inside of him would just would just eat away at him it would just it would just bother him until he could get it right Isaiah and Isaiah chapter number six spoke of the fact that his corruption or his sinfulness was turned into him into corruption. He couldn't even speak in the presence of a holy God because of the sinfulness that he had. You know, one of the great hindrances from you and I becoming disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ the way that He intends for us to. And by the way, understand this: what He tells us here in chapters five, six, and seven of the book of Matthew is exactly. How he wants every Christian to live. If you wonder, how should I live? He gives it to us in these three chapters. You ever wonder what hinders us from being the type of disciple for the Lord that we ought to be? It's getting to a place where we're okay with our sin, it's getting to a place where sin really is not all that sinful. We do it the first time, and we might have a conscience about it. We do it a second time, and it might bother us a little. Do it a third time, that's not that big a deal. Fourth time, fifth time. Eventually, we get to where we're doing sin, and it no longer bothers us at all. Before he can teach them anything, he says, Fellas, there's some things inwardly that need to happen. You need to be poor in spirit. If you're poor in spirit, you'll inherit the kingdom of heaven. You'll be able to experience those joys. There needs to be a humility in our sin, in a mourning of our sin. He said, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. If we can view sin the way that we ought to, it'll help keep us from the sin. It'll help us to live Rightly. And every time we get to the place in our lives where we can avoid the sin and live rightly, the Lord Jesus Christ can do so much more through His Holy Spirit. It is our sin that quenches Him. It is our sin that grieves Him. And if we're going to gain the comfort of the Comforter, there has to be a mourning of our sin. There has to be a disdain for it, a hatred for it. I think that there's an awful lot of importance that God places on the inner man. A lot of people get saved. They trust Christ as their Savior and they know they're going to heaven when they die. And then they take a deep breath. The weight has been rolled off. And then they go back to living their life the same way they always have. With their own pleasure at the forefront of their decisions. With their own desires, their own will. Never, never pursuing being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rest assured, we have a choice. You can be the multitude or you can be the disciple. But if you're going to be the disciple, there's a cost. There's going to be some poorness of spirit that's needed. There's going to be some mourning that's needed. Lord willing, next week we'll finish the third of the three that are dealing with the inner man. But I would encourage you this week to think on these things, to pray about them. I'm amazed in the world we live how many men of God, I'm talking about preachers, that go on national news and national TV and are interviewed that excuse... And I would say even at this point, condone sinful behavior. We're living in some very trying times, folks. Our world is in need of some disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some folks that will say, I'm willing to pay the price. I'm willing to mourn over my sin. When was the last time that we sinned? And we went to our prayer closets and we wept with a sorrow. Lord, I have sinned against Thee. When was the last time? Oh, I know we confess our sin, we pray in our devotion. Lord, forgive us of our sin. But when was the last time we mourned over it? When was the last time it became exceedingly sinful to us? Very important. We're going to be the type of disciple that God wants us to be. Let's stand together, shall we, with heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for Your Word. I pray that You will help us to learn from it and to put into practice. Lord, none of us, standing or sitting here today, not one of us, has reached a point of perfection. Every single one of us are growing. Lord, I pray that You would help us to lay...